The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I believe you might be missing the greater point of the show, Paladin Butters. Yeah, I know. Winter is coming and there's dragons and zombies on the way. I'm pretty excited for that. Broadcasting from the bowels of the Red Keep, a king's road away from a fallen Winterfell and their wintry exile of Castle Black. You're listening to The Night is Dark and Full of Spoilers with Maester Daniel and Ben of House Garrett, Lord of Oxford and Warden of North Mississippi, and other things that sound cool and stuff. For the night is dark and full of... Spoilers. It's, it's full of spoilers and stuff. The night is dark and full of... Spoilers! I keep watching that show and I'm still waiting for the darn dragons to show up and, and kick everyone's butts. It's the return of the night is dark and full of spoilers to coincide with the return of Game of Thrones. We made it. Season 8 came roaring back on Sunday. In full disclosure here, Lord Ben of House Garrett was super into the premiere of Season 8. And this from a very cynical point of view. Someone who wasn't really feeling Season 7. Hated Beyond the Wall. Loved the premiere of season eight, but you don't want to hear what I have to say. You want to hear from Maester Daniel, the Westerosi knowledge. Maester Daniel, did you like what you saw? Yes, I did. I thought it was a great way to get back into Game of Thrones. It felt like Game of Thrones. Um, obviously, some stuff, some nitpicky stuff, but overall, I thought it was a great episode. I thought it hit the high points, and it still managed to keep the interpersonal stuff interesting, which I thought was going to be a challenge for them because they sped stuff up so much last season. Let's walk the King's Road to start things out real quick. Let's reset the map. Now it's very simple. The actions in Winterfell and King's Landing. That's not so important as the ramifications of John learning his true parentage, um, as well as the many reunions. The Night King and his army of the dead are on the march. They're very close to Winterfell at this point. This premiere was all about symmetry. You had the kid in the opening shot running through to try to get a sight line to see John and Danny riding in with the army, just like Bran did in the series premiere when he's trying to get a vantage point in Arya with the helmet that didn't quite fit. All of those great things. You had Ned telling John, we'll talk about your mother when I return. And then John learns of his parentage in front of Ned's statue in the crypts. The crypts are going to play a major role. We'll talk more about that. But again, so much symmetry in this particular episode. That was the word of the day. What's the biggest takeaway from you? 
the biggest takeaway for me was them able to, you know, elicit emotion out of so many different characters where there could have been none. I think we talked about it um, yesterday when we both watched it, that the reaction from John was extremely organic as the way that Sam delivered the message, how it made Kit crushed that. Yeah. And he did. And uh, Jamie Lannister, even when he was in one scene, was able to like, when you said symmetry was the word of the day, they even ended it with how they ended the very first episode with Jamie and Bran's interaction, Bran sitting there and the facial expressions that, um, Jamie elicited. And, you know, he saw when he first, you know, walked into Winterfell. Nobody knew who he was anymore because he's this older man. Told me life experiences, the loss of his hand, the loss of his skill, and the look of bemused familiarity turned to what who would who when he turns to Bran, see who he's sitting there. It's just an amazing, it's an amazing turn, an amazing emotion in just one simple scene. It's the kind of Game of Thrones scene that um, that we expected. You and I have given the writers of this show a lot of flack, especially after season seven, getting away and deviating from the source material itself. But I got to give them props. The way in which they parlayed the news that Sam received from Danny about her executing not only his father, but his brother, who in the show, at least, he loved and had a great affinity for. It was really the turning point for him, along with his conversation with Bran, that John had to learn his parentage. And it came from a different place from Sam. We hadn't seen that type of assertiveness from Sam, some anger. John Bradley and Kit Harrington handled that, I thought was incredibly well done, but also the writers putting them in that position. But now what about the ramifications? And now where does John move forward from here? He doesn't want this crown. He's always played the part of a reluctant hero, even at the beginning. But I think that that was comes from his stark background and his stark roots when, you know, to use a tree analogy because the heart trees played such a prominent part in the soul of the North and in the mythology of the North that his roots were really his stark roots. And it's not a coincidence that the heart tree has red leaves and red eyes, just like a, the Targaryen red and white. And, you know, you see the symbology and what Daenerys's new outfit is with the white and the red, um, and how she represents House Targaryen and the some of the bad parts about it. John represents the best parts about ruling. He was raised as nothing. He was raised as a bastard for many years, for you know, his entire life leading up to that point. He assumed great things, not because of his lineage, but because of his the meritocracy. It's, it's true meritocracy. He earned his way there. And he's made – it's not because he hasn't made bad decisions. It's because he's been honest and honorable just like the Stark people are. And just like he told you know, Sam, he was – it's so unbelievable. And in the books, they go through how that mistake that Ned is not this perfect man for the longest time because Ned's such beholden, so beholden to honor for honor's sake. And, many, and that's what gets him killed at the end. That's what rep- he represents in the story, in the literature is – the honest knight who is doing the things that he thinks is right in this world. And he pays for it in the game of Thrones. We nailed it. Um, that Sam would be the one to tell him it's the one person in Westeros in the world here that John trusts the most. So he had to be the one to tell him John. I think his reaction there about his father, his father means so much to him, his entire 
meaning his entire existence is based on the fact that Ned Stark was a loyal, honorable man. And so it would stand to reason then that the biggest news of his life would hit him and rock him to his core because now he looks back on his entire life. He had a sense of purpose, honor, and loyalty that he got from Ned. And now there's this darkness upon his life that has been put on him. And it's the news he been, he's been wanting to hear and the truth and we all knew this, but for John himself, now it completely contradicts everything he's known. So the response from Kit Harrington there, the anger he had in learning that um, about Ned and his father, even though his no longer his father, his uncle, had the best intentions in keeping it from him, that's a lot to take. And now you have to pick up the pieces, if you will, and where John goes now is, is a mystery. Oh, I don't think it's really that much of a mystery. You see in some of the way they telegraph the um, preview for next week. Um, the sins of the fathers are not going to be visited on the on the sons themselves. And I think Jamie Lannister, uh, for all people, is going to represent that next week. I think he's going to have an opportunity here, John Will, to assert what is going to be his redemption arc because he was the Kingslayer and that man is dead. And Daenerys, I hope... They don't go with the Daenerys John, um, you know, strife over over the Tarleys because uh, at the end of the day, John has executed men just like he told Sam. It's the truth. That's what his honesty. Yeah, it's the best. It's the best answer to any type of confrontational argument that anybody's made. I love that. I've executed men who disobeyed me, and he did it. And he did it. You know, the way of the North. Just he, he did the same thing that Rob did. He did for the good of all and it, it, it got him killed. I mean, Jon Snow died because of, for, for the way he, the way he acted. Um, and I think that's, what's going to really, um, set the tone between him and Daenerys now, but Daenerys is a just person too. If she, she's heard from Barristan and all these people, she respected how good of a person Rhaegar was. She respected him enough to name his dragon, one of her dragons after her brothers. And I think that that's not a coincidence that the Syrians, the one the night King is riding. I think, you know, um, the two showrunners are big into symbology and, and you said at the beginning symmetry. And that's, uh, you know, if you can't tell that he's riding the dragon named after his father, if that's not a big, big red sign for Daenerys. And I think she knows on some level, that's why she's attracted to him. Um, she always talks about in the books, how she felt like, with the Targaryen legacy of marrying siblings, that she would be more attracted to Viserys, and she's not. He's cruel. He's evil. Um, Jon Snow represents everything that you know. The honorable man, the one who really who would sacrifice, who apologizes. The, in, in her whole life, men have treated her as shadow, as as property, and Jon Snow is the first one to apologize. He's the first one to really respect her. For her is not opposed to, and besides Barristan, not to use her for what her lineage and her titles mean. And uh, I think that she'll listen. I think that next week, Jamie, the trial of Jamie Lannister, for lack of a better term, you'll see Brienne again. Tyrion gets some more action. Um, Varys can play the mediator. Um, and I think that it'll set the stage for John reasserting and asserting his control because we don't have a lot of time to tell the world at large that he is. Aegon the Sixth, as they they put it all out there. So it's going to be, you know, I think that's where they're going to have to go with the interpersonal stuff because in the next episode we got we got World War Three happening. They're setting up Danny to die. 
she's going to die. And symmetry is the word of the day as they're taking their casual dragon ride through the beautiful snowy Alps of the north. And they land in front of the waterfall. First of all, John's got like some weird sexual thing with water. Bone Danny on a boat. Bone DeGret in a cave. Now he's going at, <laughs> going at Danny in front of a waterfall. It's a little weird. She says, we could stay here a thousand years and no one would know we were here or where we are and couldn't find us. And that calls back to Egret saying, we should have stayed in the cave. And then, of course, John being the true heir, I, I think it's happening. I think Danny's going to die. I, I think it was you who brought up the theory that Danny is a, and, and John are both one and the same, Azora High, yes. and her death brings about Lightbringer, whatever it might be, that would allow John or the person who assumes the Iron Throne to take that for themselves, her death being that catalyst. I think this premiere certainly set up at least the course towards that. And I, I agree with that. I just think that, you know, they keep going back to symmetry that she'll die in childbirth, like her mother died with her, which is why she's Daenerys Stormborn in the first place. So um, I really think that they'll, they'll can, you know, that they won't kill the big two, the two Shargarians now um, immediately. Um, and this, you know, you talk about the impact of him riding a dragon. If you have been reading this series, you know, since 1996, especially at the beginning, you've waited 20, over 20 years to read this, to watch this, to hear the words spoken to Jon Snow that he is Aegon the Sixth. Now, I don't think that's his name in the books, but who knows? You know, we we don't know what George's plan is. Um, there already is an Aegon. You know, his the brother, the first son of him and um, Elia Martell was um, was Aegon. So you know, it's it, it'd be difficult. I think that Rhaegar was into symmetry too. Rhaegar, you know, was the one who originally thought he was the prince that was promised because of all the attributes. Um, and then he, as he read through the scriptures and he read through the old. Um, septa, high septons and all the citadel material that he came to the conclusion that it was the join the joining of two great houses him, the Targaryen someone else and he originally thought that the Dornish were going to be that um, he was also born during the tragedy of Summerhall which is where Master Aemon's brother if you remember um, in the very I think it was the third second or third season when he first finds out about Daenerys and the dragons and he said there's a Targaryen alone in the world and then the next person you see is Jon Snow. They were trying to give you the roadmap to where we are right now, all these years later. Yeah, they were telling you what was our Stannis Baratheon standing there saying that's not who Ned Stark was. It, it, they were giving you all these hints about where this was going. But like I mentioned, the crypts appear to be a place that will carry significant meaning moving forward. You're one that has not put a lot of stock into the crypts mattering all that much. I, I think that the crypts are going to play a huge, huge deal. Now, what they play, the role they play, I don't know. But something's down there. Maybe it's Rhaegar's harp. Maybe it's a dragon under Winterfell. I want to get into some theories here and some historical background on the crypts themselves. Danny and John are going to have a conversation in the crypts next week. John learned about his parentage in front of Ned Stark's statue in the crypts. First and foremost, what is Rhaegar's harp and why could that be significant? I think it's more than anything else further evidence and proof then that John is who he says he is or who Bran and Sam have told him he is. Um, there was lots of things. He was, um, like, like I said before, in the, the, just, just now, that Rhaegar was not initially a warrior. He was a bookish type of nerd who consumed 
all the intellectual stimulus he could get. So he learned how to play the harp and the flute and all these other instruments, and he he could sing until he would make all the maidens cry. They talk about how his prowess on the tournament field when he would when he would joust and how Barristan it was very difficult for him to anyone to beat him because he was so well put together that that was not his first love. His first love was tragedies and the summer hall tragedy was one that master Eamon talked about is because master master Eamon actually was already a maester. He was the third in line. Um, his brother egg, who he talks about when, do you remember when master Eamon died and he says, egg, I dreamt that I was old. Okay. Egg was Aegon the fifth. This would have been Eris's grandfather, Ares, uh, dad, Jaharis, his, his older brother and his dad, Aegon, that they die at the tragedy of Summerhall. And it's the, it's the day that Rhaegar Targaryen is born. And that's another thing that George is into is symmetry. So Daenerys dies when a great tragedy happens, the fall of House Targaryen. Um, and Rhaegar, her brother, was born during the tragedy at Summerhall. And he was always, Summerhall was built by the Targaryen kings after they married into the Dornish family originally to to make the Seven Kingdoms the Seven Kingdoms. Um, and it's the only way that Doran was ever, you know, they weren't conquest by the sword. They were conquest by marriage. And so um, they built Summerhall as a, as a summer residence for the Targaryen kings and queens. And so they, it's assumed that that will be expounded upon in the books, that you'll see what happened there. And, you know, there's been different ones that there was a, a magic, somebody, a fire magic, somebody from SS that came over. They were trying to rekindle the dragons. Um, which every Targaryen king, um, until Daenerys, the mother of dragons, appears, was trying to do. And they would, in various states of, you know, of success, obviously, um, mostly they would get, you know, they'd try to make the stone eggs turn into dragons, or they would hatch dragons, they would be tiny dogs, dog size. Um, so that's what the, the theory is, that that's why he could play such a terrible tragedy, because he was born into tragedy. And so... He has a same type of melancholy and sense of something grander that John has. And in the dream sequence in, in the Clash of Kings, which was is co co-equal to season two around there, um, when Danny goes into the 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 hall where all the sorcerers are, and she sees visions of the future and she sees Rhaegar, say, after the birth of Aegon, the first Aegon, the one that uh, the mountain kills, um, that the dragon must have three heads. He's looking at Daenerys, and she doesn't understand it because he's standing with Elia Martell, but it's because Elia Martell can't have any children after that. And he was told by all the maesters that there would not be a third child with the Dornish queen. And that's where Lyanna Stark comes in. as the, He always assumed through the the um, the prophecy that the dragon would have three heads, and so obviously Jon Snow would be the third in his in this prophetic announcement by Rhaegar, and his harp is what he used to play the tragedies, and what he used to sing, and he said he could make every maiden weep. Is what Barristan said. They would just sit around and listen to him because it told such horrible tragedies from the Valerian Freehold and and other places as well. So. It could have something to do with it. Um, I highly doubt they would miss a harp in the Stark crypts, though. But if you're not going to go the dragon route, a dragon being buried in the crypts of Winterfell, or dragon eggs to hatch, 
I think Rhaegar's harp would then make sense. Otherwise, what are the Crips for? They're going to play a role. That's obvious at this point. But what role could they play? I think it's just to show, again, the Starks connection, the spiritual connection between the Starks. And they may, and this is the this is what I've, you know, I've come to believe that they'll somehow show why there must always be a Stark in Winterfell. That's the rule. And we don't know why that is. It could be any number of reasons. Maybe Bran knows. Again, him and Sam are the exposition machines, as they've explicitly shown now. That you know, we we said that a few years back. That with Bran's information and now Sam Citadel knowledge, they are the exposition for the audience, for the people that weren't book readers to fill in the backstory of some of the historical drama, to explain these uh, events that are happening right now. Winterfell is named after, or at least is theorized to be named after, the place in which winter fell. The story of the Night King, like his lineage dates back to a Stark. He was a Stark, or the theory goes that he was a Stark. What's the Winterfell theory to you and the Night King and the relation to the Starks? Like, what? where does it go back for you? Well, he was the in, in the books. They tell the, they go more in depth, old man, and um, some of the Night's Watch um, some of the maesters up there, Master Aemon, tell tell them it's like a scary story. And the thirteenth commanders of the night, the Night's Watch, the reason they don't have curtain walls, the reason they don't have any fortress around, how it's all facing the wall. There's nothing you can't come from the south is because the thirteenth commander, the Night King, the original Night King, fell in love with a White Walker woman, and when he slept with her, he gave his soul to her. It's almost like a Faustian. Uh, sexual thing. I don't know why George R. R. Martin always makes it sexual, but hey, that's what he does. Whatever gets your rocks off, man. And uh, and if you ever see George R. R. Martin, you know why, um, or you can assume why. Um, but he built up all the castles, which are they're twenty some odd on the wall, and he had his own personal army in the in the um, Night's Watch. So he, you know, declared himself the Night King. Um, and it said that he was a star. He was the lineage of Starks and, um, that his brother was the one who was the Lord of the Lord or the King of the North at the time. Who wouldn't slay him. In who wouldn't slay him. Correct. What's the, what's the name of the castle or fort that is the doomed castle fort of the night King that has got this ghostly, creepy kind of aura to it. The night fort, uh, is, is, is what you're thinking of. It's the, uh, it's the one where he made his uh, his king, his, his his castle, the uh, the capital of what would be the new the new northern kingdom, and uh, he and his White Walker bride uh, set up shop there, and they said they practiced human sacrifice, and and you know the wildlings have all these stories about what happened, and that he was a Stark. That's where the Stark portion comes from, is from the wildlings, which they, you know the the Starks in the north again are are, are coincided with each other. They are. They coexist on an equal plane. They are the first men that worship the old gods. Even back when um, they first declared Rob Stark, the king of the north, when great John Umber, you know, steps up and says, even their gods are queer. He's talking about the southern, the southern gods, the seven. And uh, I think that connection with this old ice magic from the north will be, is, is also tied to the Starks. And that's where Jon Snow and his importance of having both lineages as the Song of Ice and Fire himself comes. 
And that's why him and Daenerys' relationship, I think, is so intense is because they are, you know, the classic doomed couple. And why the Starks have some magic in their blood. They're descended from a White Walker itself. So maybe that could help explain then why a uh, a Stark always has to be in Winterfell because there's magic in those walls. There's magic there. And the man who supposedly built both, Bran the Builder, is, you know, it's Brandon is the is one of is like the Stark name. So that's where that's where the significance of Brandon. It, it, Ned's older brother was named Brandon. Um, there was many many Brandons throughout the Stark history. And if you read the um, the history of, of Ice and Fire, the big companion book that he writes instead of the main series, then you'll see that you know that all the way until Tor- the Torin Stark, the one who the the king who kneeled um, to the dragons and which again, um, great John Umber brought up during the King, the original King in the North scene. Um, that's another hint about what's going to happen. They only knelt for the dragons and they said the dragons were gone. Well, the dragons are back and not only the dragons back, the official line runs through Ned Stark's family. So it, we don't have a lot of time to get to what that reaction to the Northern houses are going to be. Cause not only is he a Stark, he is Rhaegar Targaryen's son. Of a much beloved Targaryen king, they thought he would be the second coming of the old king Jaehaerys. Some Starks are coming first. back from the dead, though. I think I that's what scares Arya. Well, I think it could be a couple of things: Hodor or Gendry. Who I don't know. You know, she was throwing out the vibes to Gendry. I don't know if they're gonna. God, keep I'm that shipping going. them so hard now. It's okay. That's all right. Um, and uh, the, people have shipped him in the books for years. The him or him or hot pie. I just don't see a, a good ending for her. I see tragedy. Arya, Arya is all about tragedy. She is the personification of death in the story. Um, she even requests a you know, dragon glass dagger. I mean, that's going to obviously be for somebody important. I still think it's going to be Cersei. I still think Cersei's shown that she will do anything to retain power. And they brought over, you know, it's funny, they brought the Golden Company over. But they didn't mention that the Golden Company was founded by Targaryen Bastard. They just decided just to completely wipe that from the books. Um, they made Harry Strickland, who's a, a secondary character in the books, a much a, a very second, third tier character, the captain there. I and mean, that's fine. I, you know, they don't have enough time to go over who Bittersteel was. And Unless, of course, Company. they decide that Harry Strickland, they don't really have to dive too much into it. Harry Strickland, the Golden Company are going to have an about face whenever Danny comes in and they join because they have that Targaryen lineage. You, you could get away with just one passing line about that if you wanted to. You really could, but it, in, there's a, such a, again, an involved history there. And I don't think they're going to try to throw anything new at, um, besides, you, you know, some kind of twist between two established characters already. That's too much. That's too much to try to do in the, the short amount of time that we have. I will say King's Landing feels so empty now. It used it is, to be the is, epicenter indeed. of everything. It felt so expansive and big, and now all you see is an empty throne room, Cersei, the mountain, a couple of Queen's guards, and Kyburn, and that's it. And you're on getting it in with Cersei. Other than that, you're not seeing much of anything. King's Landing is where the narrative goes to die right now. Curious as to where you think that's going to go, what the long game is here for Cersei moving forward in the final five episodes. Um, it's obvious that I don't think she's pregnant or no, that's why she teared up when he said, I'm going to put a prince in your belly, him being Euron and she teared up and she's drinking her wine glass. She's lost the baby. Um, I think that's going to be the impetus, her obsession with the legacy and the Lannister legacy and how she was serious, how she was Tyrion's, uh, uh, Tywin's child. Um, 
that's going to overtake, you know, she's going to be so obsessed with that that she will turn her to the Night King. I don't think the Night King is going to attack King's Landing with his full force. I just, I mean, no, what Winterfell with his full force. I just don't think that's where it, he's, he's shown too much of a cunning. He knows Bran is anticipating his movements. He left a message for, and he knew that people at last hearth would be, so that people would check up when the umbers didn't show up. And he obviously left that message specifically for them to see, not just for the creepy demon child who was, it was another great jump scare. I knew they were going to let that go, but it shows that they, that the night King obviously has a plan. He's not just a mindless drone, like the ones he commands that he's, that there's something other than that. And I think that, King's Landing's got a big bullseye on it because, you know, she feels pretty secure, especially because she thought that the King of the North will, you know, they'll fight off the army of the dead and she survives. Well, I, I think that gets threatened. I think that gets put out the window because only, only interpersonal stuff that'll be interesting after this, these battles that are coming and is if Cersei's off the table at some point, like in pretty quickly. All right, Flea, bottom corner. It's been nitpicking Game of Thrones like I always do. Number one, my first bowl of brown for you, sir, is Danny being so nonchalant with Bran's news that the Night King has one of his dragons. She just kind of goes, oh, no, no. Like, shouldn't she be mourning one of her, quote, children a little bit more? I agree with that somewhat, but also that Tormund and the uh, guys at Eastwatch, somebody got away with a message. Because they still know that they're alive for one thing, and that they but they don't know where you know how fast the the other the others are moving. I think you know, but obviously, again, that's another shortened season type of thing. Um, I understand your nitpicks, um, and uh, that's that's actually not one that I was that mad about. Uh, it's more the emotional reunion. I thought you know I was expecting more out of the Arya John reunion. See, I loved it. I thought it was good, but you know the line that Sansa somehow the smartest girl in the room all of a sudden. Yeah, where'd that when did that happen? I don't remember. She didn't. They didn't earn it. Um, that you know that again. You know, they I, had all of season five to make her look like the smartest girl in the room, and they didn't do it. They just let her get raped. And she, uh, you know, I, but I'm willing to forgive some of that just because. Um, I mean, like you said, she was treated so badly. Hopefully. It's because she sees Cersei for what she really is. And if anybody does, it's certainly her. You know, never forget Sansa's the reason that Ned and the Starks couldn't get out of King's Landing in the first place because she let Cersei know her plans and let the, that, that let the city watch and Peter Baelish make his moves. Um, otherwise, they would have been spirited away in the middle of the night and there's, you know, there's no War of the Five Kings. Um, and I think that if you show, you know, she gets some kind of redemption from that, you don't have to make Tyrion this dummy you don't have to have the line he's the only man that was even decent to her in king's landing he was honest to her he never abused her he even confronted his family in front of her when he got drunk when they when they were making you know when joffrey was making was joking with him and he stabs the table when he's drunk and you know he's the guy who took up for her and then she abandoned him to die and then to have this pithy comment about i used to think you were the most clever the cleverest man the Seven Kingdoms, you know, I just felt like that was unnecessary. I loved um, the line, though. It was perfect because they're reestablishing Sansa herself. I love the line. They didn't earn it, but had they earned it, that line would have been money. Yeah, and it is, but it comes at the expense of a guy who has been condemned to death by his father, falsely accused of murdering his nephew, who has been— um, Who was nothing but good to Sansa when he was married to her. And he's all he's done is 
you know, he kept Marine alive when they could have been cannibalizing each other and starving. He tried to keep the peace as long as possible without Daenerys, the person there. He kept King's Landing alive um, in the second season when Joffrey and Cersei were, you know, under siege by Stannis and they were under siege by Renly, you know, all the, the forces of the Baratheons before the Shadow Baby kills Renly. They're, they're under massive stress and he has done and performed admirably over and over and over again and even through plot armor that that we give other people crap about but he gets he gets a pass because he's such a likable character it just seems like an unnecessary jab from the writers and if they had earned it i would have probably been more forgiving of it but sansa does not she's not she doesn't earn that line she's not smart enough she hasn't played the game as long as Tyrion. she hasn't played as successful as Tyrion had but He's, she she is the new Sansa. She is the winner of this week. She's the one that won it. The perfect face for Danny when she walks in, looks her up and down like, look at this bitch right here. Look at him. And then that line to Tyrion, she confronts Jon, makes him come face to face with the truth of, did you bend the knee because you're trying to protect the North or did you bend the knee because you love her? And he can't answer that right now. It's he, both. Yeah, it's both. But we've got a lot of other things to cover real quick. So my second bowl of brown for you, sir, in flea bottom corner, Ben nitpicking Game of Thrones, Danny nonchalantly suggesting to John to ride the dragon. Danny has told the audience point blank she knows who she is. She knows the significance of her house and the history of her house, the greatest house that Westeros has ever known. And yet, she suggests to John, for all she knows is a Stark, to climb atop of Rhaegal. Stop with all that. That's just that doesn't make any sense. You should know then, as a Targaryen, that Targaryens and dragons are linked, and no other house is. Make that make sense for me. I think she inherently knows that she's already seen the affinity the dragons have. They obviously have a very intense relationship, intense attraction to one another. I think that it'll be kind of like Leia. She says that I always somehow always knew about Luke. She could always feel it. I think it's the same kind of thing. Then why did you magic. kiss Luke, Leia? Uh, that's another thing that, you know, that's another, <laughs> another series that, uh, had incest in it that nobody, that everybody still loves universally, pretty much the original trilogy. So, uh, I think that, uh, it's that kind of the, the, the blood magic, I think is really what she, she can feel it. She knows. I think the dragons know. I think that's another reason why they kept staring at him because they present themselves to him. I think that's why she was confident enough to tell him to go ahead and get on the dragon. Oh, he climbed the dragon. All right. And he mounted it literally and figuratively speaking. Yeah. So, uh, Yes, I think that, but I think that that shows who he is. The final bowl of brown, the intentional ambiguity of John when he says to Bran, you're a man now, and Bran says, not yet. Aren't you lending credence then to the conspiracy theory that Bran is the Night King? Uh, Some, but it also shows what kind of, what he is, that he's not, he's not human. He has a whole history of thousands of tens of thousands of years downloaded into his brain. He's kind of like Dr. Manhattan from the Watchmen. He sees time on a different plane. He sees the past, the present, the future, I guess, almost simultaneously at this point, which is why he's able to sit all night in the cold for waiting on Jamie Lannister to troll, just to troll Jamie Lannister. I do think that helps explain also why he wouldn't warn little John Umber or whoever the Umber kid's name was 10 years old 
hey, yeah, you're going to go get the wagons and go get your people, but the Night King's coming. You couldn't send out a raven brand. You could see that coming. But he's not fully processed yet. He's not fully the three-eyed raven to where he can see everything as it's happening all at once. It's all bits and pieces of information. That's why him sitting there at night waiting on Jamie, he knows Jamie's coming. He doesn't know exactly when he has a window. He doesn't know exactly when that's happening. So he can't just predict the future. He can't just tell you what's happened. He can tell you what happened in the past. He can't tell you what's going to happen coming up soon. That, at least for me, explains away some logic holes. It does. Absolutely. But also, they, they're trying to hide the kid. He's not that very good of an actor still. Even though he's much better, I think his bemused state, sitting there with a smirk on his face, talking about giving this, handing this gigantic information, he's dropping a nuclear bomb on what was his brother. And he's talking about how we don't have time for any of this while literally revealing information that could upset the balance of power in this family immediately. So it's kind of funny, but it's better for him, narratively speaking, that he's going to continue to be the exposition. I think that next week's going to happen. Next week, I think he's going to forgive Jamie Lannister because they are woefully short on commanders in the northern houses and in, in you know the the War of the Five Kings and the the War of the Queens, for lack of a better word, from what this new conflict is about, has devastated the commanding structure and the elite structure, the military command of every single army and Jamie Lannister is the most experienced commander, regardless of talent level, especially with a fake hand, but they can't afford for him to become a part of the army of the dead. And if Daenerys is going to show to these people what her forgiveness is like, this is a prime example of what she can do. Yeah. Especially she hasn't if, shown it to this point, the merciful, compassionate, soft and lovable queen that she claims herself to be. The Northerners don't know that person. They haven't seen that no. person. They see someone that's trying to infringe on their territory. And the one way for you to earn that, I guess, in some form or fashion is to pardon Jamie Lannister, who killed your father. And I think the brand forgiveness is going to be much easier than Danny's. I mean, Danny's is going to be a lot harder to earn, but I agree with you. I think brand's going to be pretty quick. All right, some rapid fire, rapid wild fire questions, if you will. Will the Night King speak? No. I think it's more intimidating that he doesn't. God, if and he opens if they, his if, mouth and, if, and like a Cockney accent comes out, I'm going to lose it. I think it'll be more of the same type of, um, they say it's like ice cracking in the books. I think it'll be more the just a noise, if it's anything. I think it's silly to try to make him have a voice. What are his motivations? Like Arya, he is the entropy. He represents entropy. Heat death. He, he represents the eternal eternal darkness. The That's greatest reunion in the premiere. Y you know, I really thought it was the Hound and Arya, the most appropriate. I think that was the best one because they both, you know, it showed how they didn't compromise and how they still they were glad to see each other, regardless of how they felt. Yeah, they're going to completely disrespect each other, but also respect each other internally. That, that's the that's their relationship, and it's the most true to their their natures. And they under, both understand that they grew as people. The only reason they grew as people is because of each other and their experiences together. Arya and Gendry did it for me, man. I felt it's some good heat. One too. Felt some heat. She did. She had a nice little line about, I'm the only rich girl that you know. The first major character to die is going to be? Beric is probably the most expendable. I'm glad they didn't kill anybody in the very first episode. But I think that uh, if we're talking tier two characters, Brienne's expendable. Don't kill I think Pod. Lady, uh, I, don't, I just, uh, you know, I want Pod to make it. Uh, I think the, our little our little lady, Leanna Mormont's pretty safe. I don't think they're going to kill a little girl if they kill a little boy. I think some of the minor characters, Tormund's on the table. 
which I was hoping he would get some Brian heat, but that didn't, that didn't, you know, manifest itself this time there. You got, uh, Jamie, who's probably going to die, you know, eventually, uh, if you're talking about the major characters, POV characters in the books, I would probably say Arya has got the greatest chance of dying first before any of the other big ones. Will we see Ghost in the Battle of Winterfell? Yes, we will. All right. Will we see Nymeria? I hope so. I think well, I think we will too. I think that they'll they'll bring them back for one last hurrah, especially with their um, with her wolf pack and what that represents for the Starks. I think Arya's warging into Nymeria. That's the one theory that I completely stick with. And it, you know they don't get to show it as much with the the connection between the Starks. That was the very first scene. That's the scene that spawned Game of Thrones was them finding the direwolf cubs. So hopefully they'll give that some nods here at the end since they abandoned them so abruptly. And your final grade for the first episode of only six episodes left of Game of Thrones is what? I would give it a ninety-one out of a hundred scale when it comes to you know I give it a an A minus if we're on the old school scale. I love. I think they did. I think they did great. I think they did. You know, obviously there's some logical leaps. And Sansa is really not that strong of an actor. And um, even she though she awesome. did she did good, she did well for, for this. But still, you know, it's one of those um, – it's hard for me to, you know – she they didn't earn some of the stuff when it comes to her, just like they didn't earn – Yeah, it's no fault of hers, though. That's the fault of not. the writers. And she – but, you know, she could have – she could have had some – she had better better uh, face, better come, you know, when it comes to the way that she presented herself to Daenerys and the way she presented herself – Tyrion, I think that that was just, you know, some of that stuff was, was cheap when it comes to it, but I understand that we're in a shortened season. But yeah, that's... I loved it. It felt old school Game of Thrones. What gives those big moments that a lot of fans love, the wall coming down, the red wedding, what gives them the weight that they have are the small moments. And that's what I missed from last year. Just two people talking. And that's what this was. This was the palate cleanser for the chaos that's going to come over the next five episodes. And I adored it. I loved every single interaction. Nothing felt overtly cheap to me. Even the wistful dragon ride through the beautiful mountainscape of Winterfell. Even that was fine. A whole new world. They're a whole new world moment. Yes. It's epic fantasy. It's I will remain Gladrial. It's the same thing. They needed that moment. They got it. And that's fine with me. I'm good with it. Um, so I, I would far and away say that that is a B plus. Also, a technically, if you're talking about Lord of the Rings, Arwen, who was Aragorn's love interest, they're technically related to, even though it's like 8,000 generations God. apart. What is with the incest and all these fantasy epics? I don't understand. Well, if you've read history, they kind of I know. Too. I mean, if you, I was going to say that. I was going to answer my own question. Well, Ben... If you don't like the incest played out in all of this, which I really don't care, quite frankly, I'm playing this up a little bit. Don't look back in the world's history. It ain't good. Mm. It ain't good. But I loved it because for me, it's the interactions between the characters. What makes we, us love this so much? There's humanity there. It's not just set piece after set piece. Everyone remembers when the Viper and the Mountain fought in the trial by combat of Tyrion. But for me, it was the interaction between Jamie and Tyrion in the dungeon when they're talking about their cousin who had an accident and was left socially and mentally impaired, him crunching the beetles. Tyrion couldn't stand the thought of it. Like, why did all these beetles have to die? Which it's not so subtly talking about the great game itself. Why do all these people have to die for something 
that in the grand scheme of things doesn't even matter. There's there's nothing. It's just the rock beating the beetle. I, that's the kind of stuff that I love. So I love that episode. Real quick, before we're done, what do you expect in episode two? What's coming? I think it's going to be more, you know, set up. Uh, I think they're going to use a lot of time resolving the personal conflicts between the various houses that are still there. And Daenerys's whole mantra was breaking the wheel. Well, she has not broken the wheel. She has perpetuated the wheel. She's executed great houses. She has. Her death um, is what's going to break the wheel. Her and John's together. I think John ends up, you know, John has shown over and over again this reluctant this reluctancy, but he is always going to be the martyr. I think he dies either protecting her or protecting their child. Because I think there's 100% happening. There's too many times, too many too many opportunities, and how her wound wouldn't quick wouldn't be quick, and especially when Mira's Madur, when the the woman who cursed her first child, um, I think that's when that she she gets her period at the end of the fifth book for the first time ever, for the first time in a long time. I think that that's really what she's going to see is that oh wow I'm pregnant again. She start feeling funny. She starts feeling defensive, and that could give her some of her cattiness. You know, she's she's pregnant and doesn't know it. Whereas Cersei's is all self-centeredness. Her death, John's death, breaking the will because the Iron Throne will no longer exist. That's my uh, I don't think it'll. I think it'll be a, a regency, a regency of the Iron Throne. I think that it doesn't break the will. It reinvents. It shows a neat tie-in to what just leadership does, and what men and women when they put aside their differences can work out. I think it's going to be a, a rosier picture, but it'll be bittersweet because of the death. Love the comedy in the first episode. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. He's Maester Daniel. I'm Lord Ben of House Garrett, Warden of North Mississippi, and I'll call myself the King of North Mississippi. <laughs> I'm the King of the damn North. Thank you, man. We'll talk next week. All right, next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.